and that all of the traditions and all of the practices that we have, those are just different traditions of a single religion. Because man has had the questions about who he is, who she is, what am I, what is my relationship with what I'm seeing and witnessing since the beginning of time and has, and, and has been trying to find an answer for that and trying to figure out answers for that. And all of the world's religions are the answer to that question. They are the things that we have learned or have been taught, have either been revealed or discovered, depending on how you see it. And all of them are included in the Vedanta. In the Vedanta, they have found so far four paths that lead to God-realization, that, that unitive experience, to put it in a Christian terminology. Uh, the first one is the path of, well, there is no first, second, third, but the first I'll mention is the path of Jnana Yoga. That's, that's the path of knowledge. And that's the path of going inside and asking, who am I? Who's asking this question? Who, who wants to know? Who is it that is seeking what? And so there's a bunch of practices and, and ideals that are helpful to, to take that journey, to go that direction. The uh, second one is called Raja Yoga. And Raja Yoga is uh, it's, it's a, it's a meditation, primarily a meditative path. And the idea in, in Raja Yoga is to control the mind to the extent that when one thought ends, before the next thought begins, in that little space between thought, God can be seen. And so uh, it's a very, very arduous path uh, to take. It takes a lot of introspection and discipline to come up with that kind of control, but that's Raja Yoga. There's the path of Karma Yoga, which is the path of action. And uh, in the path of action, basically what you do is you give up the idea of anything having a result, and everything that you do is done as a worship to your beloved. So if you're sitting there at the DMV and you're filling out that DMV form, you're doing it the very best that you can. You're, you're, you're writing it oh so carefully and so neatly and full attention. And when you hand it over, you're not turning in a DMV form, you're offering your newly filled out form as your act of worship. So even the most trivial things in your life become worship. And to develop that relationship with the world around you, to see it all as divine and uh, and you just worship in it, giving up the idea of the fruits for your actions. And then the one that all of us, or most of us, especially in the West, are familiar with is a path called Bhakti Yoga. And Bhakti Yoga is devotion, the path of devotion. And in the paths of devotion, there is always an incarnation of God involved, or the, or the highest ideal that you can imagine of love, if you don't want to call it an incarnation. And so Christianity, with all of its precepts and principles, falls squarely into a bhakti, a bhakti religion, the bhakti path to God. And uh, one of the interesting things about Vedanta is that they historically have recorded God coming many times. So in, in, in John, when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, Vedantins love that, find that to be beautiful but also assume that it's happened many times, that, that God has not just come once, that God has come through Rama, come through Krishna, come through Buddha, come through Jesus, uh, come through Ramakrishna, uh, and, and basically anybody that you're convinced is from God or of God, or is God-like, or is God uh, herself or himself. So that's the path of devotion. When Swami Vivekananda, who's, who was uh, one of our primary teachers at the Vedanta Center next door, he came to America uh, in, the eight, in 1893 to speak at the Parliament of Religions in Chicago. And his first lecture is one that I am so proud of and that I love so much uh, because he says that he's, he's, he comes and he starts first by saying brothers and sisters of America. He says, I don't come that a Christian should become a Hindu or that a Hindu should become a Muslim or a Muslim a Christian. He said, God forbid. He said, I come that a Christian is a better Christian, that a Hindu is a better Hindu, that a Muslim is a better Muslim. And I would add my line that an atheist is a better atheist, <laughs> as such. Yeah, even in, in Vedanta, atheism is also a part of the path, you know, that, that it's, it's considered to be part of, of the path to knowing God. There is that period of doubt, that period of, of withdrawal, where you kind of pull into yourself and then regroup and... Uh, you may or may not change your ideas. It, de it depends on how God is bringing you home, really. So in that context, in that adventure, 
I returned to my Christianity about five years ago, really out of curiosity. I uh, hadn't read the Bible in quite a few years. I did go to seminary in 1983 <coughs> in Abilene, Texas, to uh, become a missionary, actually, for the Church of Christ at that time, uh, to, uh, to West Berlin in Germany, which is, I grew up in Germany. So I thought I would return to my roots as a missionary. That, that didn't come to fruition, and uh, God kind of just, I don't know, changed the path under my feet, really, sort of just pulled the rug right out from under me, <laughs> and uh, uh, took me into, into the ideals of Vedanta. Now, what I was curious about is this whole notion of all religions being true, that uh, in, in the earliest scriptures say that religion, they call religion the Sanatana Dharma, which means the eternal religion. And uh, I was curious about what are the tenets of this eternal religion uh, that can be found in all religions? What, what, what are the pieces of this eternal religion? Because the Vedas teach that the, those religions that, that contain the Sanatana Dharma will last. They'll be eternal religions. Those religions who do not contain that Sanatana Dharma peter out. They, they, don't, they don't stand the test of time. So I began to dig into the ideals of the Sanatana Dharma and then to return to my Christianity and to read the scriptures from that perspective to see if I could find the Vedanta within Christian scripture. And uh, I found it in a beautiful way, very exciting way. And uh, really all it's about is not changing any ideals or beliefs, but it's putting Christianity back into the flow of history instead of seeing his Christianity as being in a box that begins and ends in its own place, separate and apart from anything else in the world, I thought, well, let's take Christianity out of the box. Let's put it back into the flow of history. Let's assume that the people involved were aware of spiritual knowledge up until that point, the things that were being discovered in India and, and Tibet and China in their practices. And let's assume that uh, Jesus is, spoke from that wealth of knowledge, that he wasn't ignorant of those things, that he knew those things. And let's take that perspective and read the same parables again, read the same stories again, and see if anything more interesting <coughs> opens up. Or not more interesting, but something interesting uh, opens up. So one of the first ones that I tackled uh, with that idea was the creation story. Now, uh, creation is an interesting it's an interesting philosophy. <laughs> it opens up a lot of doors. Uh, one, because the world falls apart a little bit when you start meditating and start thinking about things, because you come to realize that you can't verify anything that you think that you know about the physical world, including its existence. We know now, especially with like virtual reality and whatnot, that your brain can be spoofed. You, can, uh, you know it every night, actually. You go lay down and fall asleep and you have a dream. And in that dream you'll be walking through a city or looking at a distant mountain or taking a boat ride. And you cannot verify that that dream is not real. As a matter of fact, you assume fully while you're in it that it's real and that it exists and you experience it. And it's not till you wake up that you realize that it was a dream, that it was unreal. And what I find to be even more odd about the experience of dreaming, for just kind of funsies, is this idea that uh, you'll have a dream that seems to make perfect sense while you're in it. It, it just kind of goes, you know, this has happens and then that happens and that happens. And then in the morning, you're sitting at the breakfast table trying to tell your roommate about your dream and you realize, oh my God, that made no sense at all. I was here, I was, I was a dog and, and then suddenly I wasn't and I had no body and I was at the top of a tree and then suddenly I was, and in the dream it all just flows so nicely. And the sages say that like that, this. This world is very much like a dream, but it's a shared dream. It's happening in the mind of God. And God is like, as, as in your personal dream that you have at night, you take a particular perspective, right? But in fact, you are the whole dream. Everything in that dream is you, even though you feel yourself to be separate and apart from it. If you see a tree, that tree is not in the room that you're sleeping in. That tree is purely in your mind. You have created it. The people chasing you in your dream are you, and yet you're being chased by them, and you're terrified of them, and you're trying to escape from them. So in the very same way, God 
is dreaming all of this, as it were, and we are in that dream, and our struggle is to realize that we are not the dreamed, that we are not that particular perspective in the dream, like you have in your personal dream, but that we are the dreamer, that we are of the divine. And when you are that, uh, there, there's not a particular point of reference. So we're not talking about a gigantic ego and saying, I am God. We hear that in Vedanta. They say that the final realization is that you and God are one, that there's one without a second. But it's not that you, the ego self, is God. It's that image of God within you that was your creation without attributes except the ones of God, the attributes of God, which are infinite love, infinite intelligence, and existence. Those three things are your nature. And so our struggle is to wake up, to come to realize that this is all a dream of ego, that breaking it up in the way that we've broken it up is our problem, is our struggle. When we claimed our existence being separate and apart from God, this world appears as it is. So let's look at this great story of the Garden of Eden uh, from that perspective and sort of see how it works and what we can learn from it. So I'll just start reading the story. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So see, he's perfectly, personally, uh, first, primarily coming forward with a false statement, right? He's, he's setting up a false teaching. Did God say to you that you can't eat from any of these trees in the garden? Something so ridiculously, you know, unfair. And, and uh, of course, the woman says to the serpent, oh, no, we can eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. So... He says, the snake says to her in response, he says, oh, you will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So we see what's happening here, that, that Eve is in bliss. She is in the garden of paradise. Her will and God's will are the same. There is no, no difference. If God wants something, Eve wants it. She's right on board with it. And she's just out there enjoying that walk with the divine, that bliss of God, that unity, that harmony, and all of the, the ecstasy that comes along with it. And the snake comes along, says to her, hey, 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 are you, you're not allowed to eat any of this fruit, huh? Look at it. It's all around. It's so, oh, no, I can eat it. Oh, you can. Good, good, good. But I can't eat the fruit from that tree. Oh, well, that's interesting. Why wouldn't God want you to eat that fruit? Why can't you have that? Oh, well, he says, if I touch it, I'll die. You know, that I'll lose, that, that, that I, I should, just shouldn't eat it. He says, oh, you're not going to die. It will make you like God. Now, see, here is our condition. It's, it's disguised a little bit. But within you is the Garden of Eden. Within you is the image of God that God placed there. It's before ego, it's before mind, it's before personality, it's even before thought. It's a place of absolute stillness, absolute tranquility, absolute purity, where the harmony of God and you exist as one. What has happened is what has happened to Eve here. She gets drawn out into her senses. She's walking through this world enjoying God, enjoying the garden. And she, she's confronted with the snake that tells her, that, lie, that, that, that kind of plays with her mind a little bit, making God look like he's being unreasonable and making these demands from you, and saying, no, you can do these things. You should do these things. You should investigate these things. There's knowledge there. It will make you like God. Well, the problem with that is she's already made with like God, right? In verse 27 of that same of chapter 1 in Genesis, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. So she was already like God. She didn't have to eat a fruit to become like God. But what happens when you step into your senses, when you step out of that place of tranquility, that place, that place of faith, that place that needs nothing, that demands nothing, when you step out of that place into the senses, what happens 
is you who are infinite in your nature, infinite in your love, identify with the finite all of a sudden. And when, you ident when the infinite identifies with the finite, meaning you've claimed the body as yours, you've claimed the mind as yours, I'm no longer a spirit, I'm no longer a soul, I am a body, I am a mind, I have senses. She goes through here, and when you step into that body as the infinite, you're suddenly limited, you're suddenly small, you're suddenly insecure, you're suddenly not whole, you're suddenly needy. You have to, you, you, you want to express that infinity that you feel, so you, you try to do it on this finite canvas, right? You try, you try and get enough money to be permanently secure, but the stock market keeps bouncing all over the place. You can't quite do it. And you can see from the world's richest men who are still going to work for 12 or 14 hours a day, even though they own more than 60% of the rest of us combined, they're still working hard every day to shore up that fortune and to shore up and make more and to grab that infinite security, which can never come from that. I used to be entertained in the late 90s when Larry Ellison, the head of Oracle, and uh, uh, who is the head of Microsoft? Bill Gates. Yeah, Bill Gates. You know that that I you would read in the in the technology section who was at the top that day, which mm -hmm. one was the most was the richest man in the world because depending on how their stocks were doing they would jimmy back and forth, and I thought to myself I bet that drives them crazy. <laughs> you know, Larry gets up on top one day and then feels like ah, we got to get back up to number one so he fights so it never stops. There's no end to it. Is the bottom line of it. Vivekananda says to us in regards to this, he says, every human being, whosoever and wheresoever he may be, has an ideal of infinite power. Every human being has an ideal of infinite pleasure. Most of the works that we find around us, the activities displayed everywhere, are due to the struggle for this infinite power or this infinite pleasure. But a few quickly discover that although they are struggling for infinite power, it is not through the senses that it can be reached. They find out very soon that the infinite pleasure is not to go through the senses, or in other words, the senses are too limited, the body too limited to express the infinite. To manifest the infinite through the finite is impossible, and sooner or later man learns to give up the attempt to express the infinite through the finite. This giving up, this renunciation of the attempt, is the background of ethics. Renunciation is the very basis upon which ethics stands. There never was an ethical code preached which did not have renunciation for its basis. So that is what Eve is opening herself up to, and we're going to watch that unfold here. It said, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So we see that when you take this step out of the infinite soul, when you stop identifying yourself as spirit, you know, enjoying the fruits of the spirit that Galatians talks about, that love, that kindness, that unselfishness, that giving nature. When you step out of the spirit and step in to the finite, Paul says you become part of the law. What is law? Law is restriction. You become part of the restricted and finite world, the world of the flesh. Now, when you step into that world of the flesh, you feel that constriction, but you still want to manifest the fullness. But because the place that you came from, now behind you that you've stepped off of it, is a place of tranquility, silence, holiness, and perfection, it can't call you back. It doesn't make any identifying noise for you to find it. You now are caught in the world of the flickering and glittering senses. It's taking all of your attention, and you keep just kind of mesmerized by it all, taking these steps forward into this, into this world of changing things, which incidentally is what Jesus was talking about when he gave that parable of the wise man building his house on the sand versus the, the wise man who builds his house on the rock. To build your house on the rock is to build your house on the unchanging. That's the, the, the identity as soul, the identity as spirit. That is the unchanging wholeness within you. To build on that knowledge, the knowledge that I am pure love, that I am the image of God, that I am existence itself, that I never was born and never will die. 
that I will always live with the beloved. To build a life on that is to build on the rock. To find your joy within you is to find a joy that can't be taken from you. You know, many of us are standing on the brink. I like to say I'm standing on the brink. Everybody tries to tell me I'm young all the time. I really want to be old. <laughs> so I keep trying to tell her, no, no, I'm old. I'm in my 50s, for crying out loud. And so <laughs> as we stand on this, on this portal, really looking at old age, if you haven't built your castle in the heart, slowly we watch all of the things that we love be taken away from us. Is that not true? You know, we no longer have the looks to get the pleasure that we wanted. We no longer have the energy to be out in the clubs until 2 o'clock in the morning. Maybe we can't drive anymore, so we can't, you know, go here and go there to, to do all the things that used to distract us and used to, to titillate our senses. And slowly, slowly, the world gets smaller and smaller. And I learned this by watching Swami uh, uh, Asitananda in San Francisco, who was a very old, old monk when I first joined. And I watched him go through that process until he came to a point where he couldn't get out of a chair. He had to stay in the same chair 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It was a <coughs> recliner, fortunately for him. And uh, he, he just couldn't go anywhere. And he lived out at the Vedanta Retreat Center in Olima in California, which is 2,300 acres of woodland. There was no one around, no one to entertain him, no one to go you know, put him in a car and take him for a drive. He he needed nothing. He wasn't bitter. He wasn't angry. He wasn't lonely. He had spent his life building that inner shrine, that cave of the heart that St. John of the Cross talks about. He had built a room in his heart where he communed with the beloved. And for him, that was his joy. For him, that was his fulfillment. For him, that was his source of love and happiness. And so when the world of the senses had completely almost evaporated for him, had become almost completely unavailable, he was nonplussed. He was not lonely, he was not sad, he was not angry or bitter. He accepted it and sat with the beloved, happy as ever, contented as ever. And I knew to myself, I knew that I had some work to do because I can't stand to sit in a room for 15 minutes alone because you know, I can't stand the idea of not being able to travel. I can't stand the idea of not having tons of dinner parties at, the, at that time in my life. Dinner parties and friends and movies and dance halls and excitement of all kinds. Couldn't conceive of the life he was living. But to see the beauty with, with which he lived it to me and to see that process. He used to have a little uh, shrine to God on the top of his dresser in his room. And he would go out every morning when he was still walking into the Vinca patch, which was this big patch of purple flowers in front of the men's retreat house. And he would pick a bunch of flowers and take them in and put them on, the, on his little shrine to God in the morning, kind of just an offering. And then he would sit down. He eventually came in down with Alzheimer's, and so the mind started to go. And I started noticing when I would go there on Tuesday morning that these little pile of flowers, there would be one on, on one of the younger monk's seats that he sits on when he was meeting guests at the front door. And I went into the kitchen and I found on the counter in front of the bread box another little pile of flowers. And then I walked around the barn down to Swami Asitananda's room and I passed the mechanic's bench. And there on the mechanic's bench was a little offering of flowers. And then I went into his room and of course there on his shrine to, 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 to his beloved was another pile of flowers. And I understood I thought the world of limitation is opening up for him. He's starting to see God in all things, starting to be inspired by all things, seeing that, seeing everything as a reflection of the divine. And so he began worshiping everything without, without limitation. You know, it could be the, that workbench, it could be that chair, it could be that counter. It didn't matter to him anymore. And that progressed even farther. I always wonder if I should tell this story because I'm sure he'd be so embarrassed, but it made such an impression on me. One of the mornings before he finally became bed-bound, really, or chair-bound, I drove into the Olima retreat and turned that last corner around the last big tree. There was the Vinca patch, and there was, there was Maharaj standing there in the middle of the Vinca patch picking purple flowers for his shrine with no pants on. <laughs> <laughs> so he had forgotten to put his pants on. I don't know how you do that. I assume it had something to do with... with, with, with is Alzheimer's coming into play? And I pointed it out. I 
pulled up to him and I rolled the window down and I said to Swami, you forgot to put your pants on. And he looked down. Oh yes, I guess I did. And then kept picking his flowers and went into the barn to make his offering and I thought, that's what I want to be. I want to be so in love with the divine, so in love with, with, with the, the, my highest ideal that I can forget to put my pants on but not to forget to make my flower offering. You know, I can forget about my body, but I can't forget about my love. And that, that kind of set the stage for where I wanted to go in this life. And what I'm seeing here, to bring us back to the story of the garden, is Eve wanting those same things, but being convinced for a moment as she stepped into the senses that what she needed was out there. Suddenly, being in the garden with God himself wasn't enough. Somehow being the image and, and design of God, being in absolute harmony with his will, was not enough. Suddenly she becomes forgetful. She hears those strange words from the serpent. And when she steps into the senses, she looks, and what the first thing she says, it's pleasing to the eye. That's the first step. We step into the sense world, we look out, we find things, oh, that's pretty, that's, that's pleasing calls you, it draws you out some more. She begins to think about it and she says, ah, it looks like it would be good for food. Yeah, not only is it pretty, but it looks like it would be good for me. I would enjoy eating it. Why? Because it's going to give me knowledge. It's going to fulfill me. It's going to make me like God. All right, and so she gets this tantalizing idea that her completion is done through the senses that she's a body and she's a mind and limited and small and that her fulfillment will come through the manifest world, through the senses, through the body. And at that point, uh, she takes the fruit and she eats it and it says, the eyes of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So they realized immediately their separateness. They recognized immediately their vulnerability. Now that they have become a body, now that they have become separate from God, suddenly there's this notion of other. And that other has to be hidden from, has to be protected from, has to be, you know, managed some way. So that smallness takes place. And it goes even more than that. And you'll find this in your own life if you start discriminating and looking at, at these things as they happen within you. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So you see what it does. It does two things. One, it makes you feel vulnerable. It makes you feel small being in the body. The second thing is fear. What once probably was a moment of joy, I can imagine that before the fall, if they heard the beloved walking in the garden, that they would scramble like children toward their grandmother to be with him, to spend that time with him. But now it's different. Now they have, now they have the, 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 the consciousness of an ego. They realize that they've broken a rule. Now they have fear. And that's the first thing that happens when we identify with body and mind, these finite things. The first thing is fear, separation, difference from each other. And we have to protect ourselves from the unknown, from each other. And because of that, that, that projection, that undoing, uh, God initiates some things here. Uh, we call it a curse, but really it's just the direct fruit of what happens when we live this way. It says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, <laughs> she gave me some fruit from that tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, it was the serpent. <laughs> the serpent over there deceived me and I ate. And so you see, that's the second problem. That's the second thing that prevents us from our healing is we blame everything else. It's their fault. It's that fault. It's because of this. It's because of that. We don't just say, yeah, I got deceived, I thought the wrong thing, I ate the fruit, and now look at me, I, I messed up. What a different story it would have been. 
if that had been the response. If when they had heard God walking in the cool of the day, instead of running and hiding, they ran to find him, to say, oh, help us, help us, look what we've done. You told us not to eat of it, but I ate of it, and now I feel awful, I feel alone, I feel separate, I feel small, I feel afraid. How do I come to you? Because you see, they stepped into the world of law. They stepped into the world of karma, where all of your actions have an equal and opposite reaction where everything that you do has a fruit to it, has, a, has, has an outcome. And because they had stepped into that space, they were afraid, they run, and they hide. And the curse is given to them. God says, look what you've done, you know, because you've done this, this is what's going to happen. Now we think that God cursed him, like he did something out of the ordinary and said, oh, I'm going to give you this curse. All he's doing is explaining what it's like to live in the finite senses. He said, if you take your desires as your guide, if you're going to look through your senses, you're going to see beautiful things that are going to create a desire in you, and you decide that they're going to be good for you, and that you want them, and that you need them to make yourself complete, and to make yourself whole, this is what your life will be. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you, and to dust you will return. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. So we see a couple of very interesting things here. If you choose a life based on the sand, if you choose to build on sand, which is your senses, which is your desires, which is your personality, which is your, your, content, your, your mental contentment, all the things of the body, comfort. If you make those the things that you're going to build your life on, if you take those things as the guide for what you're going to do, then you're going to have to work 8, 10, 12 hours a day to pay for the cars, to pay for the families, to pay for the vacations, to pay for the houses, to pay for all of these delectable things that you have convinced yourself that you need to be happy, that you need to be content, that you need to be fulfilled. As long as you go outward for your satisfaction, the curse is ours. The curse belongs to us. We cannot find that oasis. We cannot find Eden. And what's interesting here is, first of all, God explains this to them, and then in compassion he does what? He makes them some clothes. He tries to alleviate some of the suffering of the mistake they've made. He makes them some clothes. And then he does something quite beautiful. He says, you know what? You're in this condition. You've had this fall. I've got to make sure that you don't eat from this other tree. They could have eaten from the other tree. It wasn't one of the forbidden trees. But this was the tree of immortality. Now, why would God not want them to eat from the tree of immortality? Any ideas? Damaged people. Yeah. If he had done that, if he had allowed them to eat of the tree of immortality in their fallen state, there would have been no remedy. It would have been an eternal condition. They would have lived eternally in that state as a fallen individual, as a person believing themselves to be body-mind and struggling in that realm for the rest of their days. He would have been stuck like that, but he doesn't. He drives them out of the garden, which really they had already left that paradise paradise of no need, of no desire, the paradise of harmony with the beloved, intimacy with the divine, knowing your nature. Having stepped out of that into the finite and the limited world, now they are outside of the garden. God has driven them out and placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And desire is always described as a flaming sword. So until you conquer your desire, you cannot make your way back into the Garden of Eden. You cannot again find that oasis, that place of tranquility that you stepped off of in the heart, in the, in the center of soul, the, 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 the castle that uh, St. Teresa of Avila talks about within that cave of the heart that St. John of the Cross talks about, that inner shrine, that inner shrine where the image of God is manifesting in the material world and producing you. You, you are intended to be God enjoying this world. 
You are intended to be absolute love manifesting in this world. You are intended to be absolute purity manifesting in this world. But what happens is that we've separated ourselves from God. We've believed ourselves to be separate and apart from Him. We've become an idolater in a sense. And this body and this mind has become our idol. We wash it so nicely. We perfume it. We feed it its favorite things. We take it to its favorite places. <laughs> we feed it its favorite movies. You know, listen to its favorite music. All of the things of the senses, but all the time worshiping a body and a mind and forgetting our soul, forgetting our very nature, forgetting the image of God in which we were created, that love, that intelligence, that existence, the I am. We took, uh, we took when, God, when God told Moses, remember when Moses was in, the, in Egypt and he was told to go tell the Israelites that, uh, you know, that God was going to rescue them. And he says, uh, he says, Moses says to God, he says, well, it's a really good idea. But when I get out there and you're not there anymore, who am I going to tell them sent me? And God says, I am. I am sent you. So God is that existence, this moment, this moment that we've always inhabited, this moment that never ends and never begins. We've always been in the same moment. This is the divine. This is God. We are in that space. But what happens is we, because we are that image of the beloved given to us, we take that I am and we fill it with strings of adjectives. I am a man. I am a woman. I am 50. I am educated. I am Indian. I am an American. I'm gay. I'm straight. I'm this. I'm that. We take a string of, ad of limiting adjectives and decorate ourselves with them. We, 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 we celebrate that, f that finity, <laughs> that smallness. Fill ourselves with these adjectives of limitations. And Vivekananda says if you sit and really ponder yourself, really look at who this ego self is that you enjoy, that you think you are, he says you'll find it's just a set of limitations and restrictions, nothing more. And he says if you look out at all of the things in this world that you think you'll miss when you go, if you look out and, and examine all the things that you've enjoyed and that you've indulged in, he says, you will find that they are only varying combinations of five. Your five senses. Titillations of five. That's all. Nothing more. That nothing has ever touched you. Nothing has ever spoken to you. Nothing has ever hugged you. Your body has been hugged. Your mind has been spoken to. Your ears have heard. But what you come to realize, and what St. Teresa talks about, and what St. John talks about, and all the mystics, if you read the mystics of all the world's traditions, there's where you find the unity of religion. There's where you find that oneness, because all of them describe the same thing, that falling into the unity of God, losing that sense of separateness, losing that, losing that sense of smallness, when you realize that all is you, that the reason you love your neighbor as yourself is because it is the very same image of self that resides in your neighbor as resides in you. You and your neighbor essentially are one. Before personality, that personality gets charged when the, when the, when the ideas of me and mine touch the thoughts of mind. That's when the individual becomes born. That's when the separate identity becomes born. And when we assume that's what we are, when we assume that we're that separate entity, that I'm this body and this mind, then I have to go, when I look at you, I'm going to make the same assumptions about you. Oh, you're a body and you're a mind also, but you're a different body and a different mind than me. But if through practice and inquiry and love and relationship with the divine, you come to realize that you're a soul, that you're an image of God, that you, that you are without boundary, without need, without lack, then when you look at another person, you don't see another person. You see your beloved. You see yourself. You understand that behind those eyes, behind that mind, before the troubles, before the problems, before the adjectives, is God himself looking out at you. And you feel that love. You feel that divinity. You're reminded of what it was to be infinite, to be a soul, to be divine, to be in harmony with the will of God to have nothing separate, nothing small that has to be maintained, nothing hungry that has to be fed, nothing empty that has to be coddled, 
but you are that ever-present, ever-pure self. So to return to that garden is our goal. To find our way back is the goal. Vivekananda says, if there is this truth, if there is God, he must be within us. I must be able to say, I have seen him with my own eyes. Otherwise, I have no religion. Beliefs, doctrines, sermons, they do not make religion. It is realization, perception of God, which alone is religion. What is the glory of all these men who the world worships? God has no more a doctrine for them. Did they believe because their grandfather believed it? No. It was the realization of the infinite, higher than their own bodies, higher than their own minds and everything. This world is real inasmuch as it contains a little bit of the reflection of that God. We love the good man because in his face shines the reflection a little bit more clearly. We must catch it ourselves. There is no other way. That is the goal. Struggle for it. Have your own Bible. Have your own Christ. Otherwise you are not religious. Do not talk religion. Men talk and talk and talk. Some of them, steeped in darkness, in the pride of their hearts, think that they have the light, and not only that, they offer to take others upon their shoulders, but both fall into the ditch. No church ever saved by itself. It is good to be born in a temple, but woe unto the person who dies in a temple or church. Out of it. It was a good beginning, but leave it. It was a childhood place. Let it be. Go to God directly. No theories no doctrines, then alone will your doubts vanish, then alone will all your crookedness be made straight. In the midst of the manifold, he who sees that one, in the midst of this infinite death, he who sees that one life, in the midst of the manifold, he who sees that which never changes in his own soul, unto him belongs eternal peace. So that's the goal and summation of our condition return to the Garden of Eden, return to that inner nature, that image of God. What is that image of God that you're hoping to touch? It's love unconditioned. So make your love unconditioned. Purify a mind so that love doesn't get refracted into conditioned love. All we know in this world is shopkeeper's love. We'll keep calling our friend as long as they keep calling us. We'll keep inviting them to our New Year's Eve party as long as they invite us to their Christmas party. <laughs> you know, we'll call them as much as they call us. But if they stop calling, we stop calling. If we don't get invited, they don't get invited. It's all shopkeeping, Vivekananda says. You weren't meant for that. That's why it hurts. That's why it doesn't feel right. Because it's not your nature. Your nature is unconditioned love. And what is the purification of mind that you have to do to allow your love to be unconditioned? First of all, you have to know the beloved. You have to get a taste of what unconditioned love is like. Second is the removal of me and mine. The me and mine is the thing that made you small. It's the thing that deceived Eve, that made her think that she wanted to take that fruit to herself and eat it. Me and mine. To remove that from the mind will remove all the troubles. It removes the suffering, the sages say. So that's our goal. That's our condition. That's where we need to go. And you can do it by any of the four paths that they've discovered. Or if you want to and you want to be bold and imaginative, you can forge your own. There's only three things that are necessary in religion. This is, this is after, <laughs> after, after my what I consider lots of reading, which for a lot of people might not be so much. I found that after having read many of the sages and many of the saints and many of the incarnations, that they've come up with three things that are the most important thing. So if you're going to practice religion, practice it as you like, but keep these three things in mind. Number one, love. Love is the most important thing, and it should inform everything that you do. Anything that you are not doing out of, an, out of the desire to express love is not going to be helpful to you. Love God, love each other, love yourself. Those are the three components of love. The second one, 
is uh, from a sage named Sri Ramakrishna. He's, uh, he was sitting on the banks of the river one day, and he was saying, he was telling one of his disciples, sincerity and earnestness are the two most important things in religion. If you seek God with sincerity, if you seek God with earnestness, he himself will take responsibility for you. He'll come and get you. He'll make sure that you get there. So that sincerity and that earnestness is important. And the third one is truth. Now truth is a big one. People say, oh, what is truth? Pontius Pilate, oh, what is truth? <laughs> truth is also an alignment between three things. What are those three things? What you think, what you say, and what you do. Those three have to be in alignment for spiritual life to occur, for you to be able to grow spiritually. So you've got those three things, love, sincerity and earnestness, and truth. Cling to them, hold on to them, and then find your beloved, find God, in the form that he's using to call you. The Vedas say that, that God is like ice in the water, that it's your devotion that freezes him into a form. He will appear to you as your highest ideal of love. If you're raised as a Christian or live as a Christian, believe in Christ, for you that highest ideal of love would probably be Christ, would probably be Jesus. If you were raised in a foreign land outside of a different tradition, say a Krishna or a Buddha, that will be your highest ideal of love. It is the same love behind it. God is that love. And he manifests in all things, all creatures. The highest form of worship, according to the Vedas, is the service of God in each other. To look in each other's eyes and see love and respond accordingly. To see each other as pure. To see each other as our highest ideal. To treat each other with our highest love, our, our most open heart, our most compassionate self. That is the world of Eden. That is the world of knowledge, of knowing the beloved. That's the world that's not lived according to the changing requirements and endless demands of senses, of body, and thoughts of mind. It's to build on the rock. It's to endure the storms of this life and not to be beaten by life, but to find yourself fulfilled through the experience. Any questions or ideas? Yes, ma'am. How do you cope with man's propensity for evil? Yes, man's propensity for evil. That's another lecture. <laughs> uh, in Vedanta, evil does not exist in and of itself. Vedanta is uh, evil is love seen from another perspective. All right, uh, which is quite a challenging thought. What happens is that you love things of the body. You love things of the mind. And so that's when the aversions and the attractions come in. I like green beans more than I like than I like. Uh, broccoli, you know. <laughs> I like uh, blonde-haired people more than brown-haired people. I like tall people more than short people. All of the things that mind goes into preferences, it conditions all of your love. So all of mankind's propensity for this uneven loving comes from his ideas of himself as a body and mind. You know, one of uh, one of my meditation uh, routines that I went through for a while to learn that, or to understand that idea, to test that idea, was 9-11, right? 9-11, big event that changed the lives of many people and certainly the nature of the world and, and the country we live in. I looked at that, and, and what was troubling to me was that on that same day when I saw that happen live on television with my mother on the phone, like, just, <laughs> I, we didn't need a phone. We both just had our mouths wide open staring at televisions on different sides of the country. To watch that happen, if I identified myself as, an, as a young American male, that was a horrendous, horribly evil, unforgivable thing to do. But what bothered my thinking and my security in being self-righteous like that was understanding that on the <coughs> other side of the world, I was also seeing images of young men like myself dancing in the street because the dragon had been punched in the eye. If I myself had identified as a young Muslim man, I would have seen a great victory for my faith. I would have said, finally, we're standing up against the imperialists. You know, Finally, we can stop this influx of, of debauchery and whatnot through media that they feel offended by, that they feel uh, 
unnerved by. And so I began to see, well, see, that event was just an event. It happened. Things in this world happen. They do not have a positive value. They do not have a negative value until they meet you. You, that image of the beloved, that image of the divine. You are the one that decides whether an action is good or evil, is right or wrong, is positive or negative. And you will do that largely on what you think of yourself. If you think of yourself as simply human and stop with the attributes there, then you will feel for the Muslim as much as you feel for the Christian, as much as you feel for the Hindu or the atheist, the American, the Mexican, the Australian. If you identify yourself simply as human, simply as that image of the divine, your love can be broad and even and sweet. If you lay in attributes onto that, I'm an American, then by necessity you have to like things Americans like, things that are beneficial, America first. <laughs> That's where you have to go with that. If you see yourself as a woman, if you see yourself as a man, you load on more limitations, more restrictions for yourself, more needs and necessities, more lenses through which your love is going to be refracted. Because the Vedas teach us that actually love is the only motivating force in this world. Even Hitler was motivated by love. He had an ideal. He had something he loved a great deal but it was utterly identified with body-mind. He had measurements for noses, colors for hair, colors for eyes, nationalities, family trees, but he loved his ideal, and it was his love of his ideal that drove him into that. But because his ideal was based on body-mind, finite things, the number of people that benefited from that love, very small, very small number of people. If you happen to be a blonde German, in World War II, you were in a good place, <laughs> except you were probably on the battle lines. But you take at the other end of the scale a Jesus, a Buddha, a, a Ramakrishna, someone who, who saw themselves as a soul, saw themselves as, as spirit. Their, their, their love was not expressed as an identity of being a man or a woman or, or, or any of those things. His love was free and equal to everybody that he met, whether they were Jewish, whether they were uh, a follower of his, whether they weren't a follower of his. That love came and flowed freely. So you see, it's a, it's a gradation, and all of us are somewhere on that scale, so, somewhere between a Hitler and between a Jesus. You know, these words are even hard to say. I know it's a challenging idea, but it stands up under, under, under scrutiny if you really look at it. And so that's how do we deal with this world? We deal with this world by purifying ourselves of me and mine and loving. That's all that we can do. We can't, we can't, we can't do each other's minds. But by doing it ourselves, history will remember you. History will never forget Jesus. History will never forget Buddha. History will never forget Krishna or Rama. These names will be eternal because they come from an eternal place, an identity that's eternal, a self that's eternal, that image of God. Yes, sir. How do you uh, deal with the spiritual self and the corporal needs of, of existence, the need for food, the need for shelter? Yeah, uh, several ways. <laughs> One is that God promises he'll take care of those things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. So it's a matter of faith that as you, as you go for God and God alone, that he will take care of you. Uh, you find it to be true if you test it in a pure way. You know, uh, There's many stories of, uh, there's a, a, let me think of one to tell. There was a monk named Heng Shur. He's still alive. He's a young man, actually, a monk in uh, Ukiah, California. He's got there's a large monastery, the city of ten thousand Buddhas. And when he became a monk, his teacher made him walk from Laguna Beach, California, to Ukiah, California, which is like five hundred and fifty miles, taking two steps and then an Ashtanga pranam. An Ashtanga pranam is laying down flat on the ground. There's 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 a rule: three three parts of your body have to touch the ground: your forehead, your chest, and your feet, <laughs> for a proper Ashtanga pranam. So they would take two steps, lay flat on the ground, stand back up, take two steps, flat on the ground, for 550 miles. They took no provisions for the road. 
They took no food, they took no extra clothes, they took no umbrellas, they took nothing. And he writes a, a book, I don't think it's been published because it was typed <laughs> so, when I read it. But in that book, he documents his path, walking Highway 1 for 550 miles, didn't miss a meal. He tells these crazy stories. He says that they were, he was walking in the rain one day, it was a, he and a, and a buddy, the two of them were doing it together, they both joined the monastery. So was, they were walking in the rain, it was, they, were, they, were, they were between towns, it was lunchtime, and uh, they say that this, this uh, VW bus drives by, doesn't stop, it keeps going. They keep walking, doing their two steps in a bow, and they come up and around the corner they find that this uh, van had pulled over to the side of the road and set up a table and put food on it and fixed it all up and was waiting for them. And they asked, the, when they got there, like, this is incredible, where, where, where are you coming from? And the people said, well, we were going to go to a picnic and, you know, it started raining and the picnic was canceled and we were driving home and we saw the two of you walking on the side of the road and we thought, I bet they're hungry. <laughs> and so we stopped and opened up the picnic table and put the food out and waited for you to get here. That story happens over and over and over again for them. Now, as you know, let your mind do what you want to do with that. Seek God and then see what happens. That's the important thing. Don't go out and see if you really need to go to the grocery store or not. Seek God first. Seek God first and all these things will be handed on to you. Not go test and see if these are true and then seek God. <laughs> seek God first. So in one answer to that, God, God will take care of those things and does take care of those things. Second, it depends on how far out the oovy groovy path you want to go. <laughs> you know, there are also stories of saints and sages who have transcended the need for food, even in modern day. BBC did a special just about 45 years ago, I guess it was. There was a, a sadhu in the Himalayan mountains who claimed that he didn't have to eat. He was a breatharian. So they locked him in a, uh, in a hospital ward for seven days and didn't allow him to eat, didn't allow him to drink, didn't allow him to, to use the facilities or anything. On film, seven days, no trouble. He came out just as vibrant as he went in. You know, is that proof, is it evidence? Nothing will prove anything. There is no evidence for, for, for a doubting mind. You draw your lines, you make your decisions, and live accordingly, that's of that. But it is one of the answers for those asking those questions. Uh, the other one is that you may get it, you may not get it. You know, the, the philosophical response is, you're not the body. When it drops off, you're still fine. The body's not there anymore, you'll either take another one or go to God, it's up to you. you know, surrender, surrender that ego. So they don't have a concern for whether they're fed or not. They don't have a concern for whether the body is maintained or not. That's another option, another idea that's presented in the Vedas. So, uh, and then, uh, you know, the other one is to go out and work hard. <laughs> work hard, but do it as karma yoga. Um, thank you for your thoughtful presentation. I was curious about uh, time. Uh, throughout your uh, presentation, you didn't say anything about time and the flow of time, uh, fortunately, because I think so much of time and kindliness is the source of evil um, in our modern world. And even when I was a child, I always thought of uh, violence that so many traditions disavow as a degenerate extreme form of impatience, uh -huh. because uh, whether you look at Quakerism or in your own tradition, uh, time and kindness has a sort of grip on us. And I was intrigued that for the entire hour you didn't say a word about time. Yes. And I was curious, what role does time play? Um, and it's corrupting influence on us because we need to get things done now, or else everybody else will die. You know? Yes. And we enforce that by violence. Okay. And we cannot be patient about things to happen. Yeah, you could look at it that way. It can be broken that way. Uh, first of all, it's 11.05, so anybody who needs to go, wants to go, feel free to go. I won't take it personally, uh, so let that be said, because if we're going to talk about time, it might take us a minute. <laughs> uh, time doesn't exist in, in one sense. Uh, certainly the physicists can't seem to define it, don't know what it is. Time is just change. So this world is change. Now, for a Vedantist, <laughs> this one in particular, 
Only this moment is real. Only the unchanging moment, this moment that has never ended and never begun. We have always been present. That is God. This moment in its entirety is the beloved. So how do we have this notion of past and future? You talk about flow. Through this moment seems to flow many things. If we were just to allow them to flow, allow them to be, then we would only experience the moment. We would only experience God as, as this moment. But what happens is that we see these changing things pass through our, vision, our field of vision for the moment, and we grab them. We want to imbue them with, inf with, with immortality. I want pizza to be immortal. <laughs> I want there always to be pizza. Yes, yeah, so I grab that pizza and I put it in my mind. I hold on to that image. I ate it, I delighted in it, I remember it. So I collect my attachments, the things that I want to be immortal in the sense world, those things that are ever-changing, that have no reality in and of themselves. Pizza is not always pizza. It rots and becomes a garden after a few days. You know? <laughs> so these things, but you grab them and you place them in your mind. What happens when you do that is you come up with the idea of a past. You have your storehouse of attachments, things that you wish were immortal. The problem with doing that is that they now color your perspective of the present. The pre your view of the present is no longer pure. If you were to smell pizza, that would bring up your image of your attachment to pizza, and suddenly you would feel incomplete in the moment. I need pizza to be happy right now. <laughs> so what happens when this attachment flares up, causes a sense of lack in the moment, then you have to invent a future because you have a desire that you have to come up with a plan for how to bring pizza into your present. So your past is your attachments, the things that you want to imbue with immortality. Your future is the desires that they cause you to project onto the present moment. So most of us are spending all of our times bouncing between our attachments and our desires and never being present, which is why the, 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 the practice of mindfulness is so popular to bring you here in the moment. Be free from your attachments. Let the past be the past. Let those things go. You don't need them. You are happy without them. And when you let go of those attachments, you'll be able to enjoy the fullness and the richness of being of, of this moment, what it's offering to you. And you won't be distracted by projecting need, by feeling lack and having to fulfill it. And so you find the Eden. You find the garden within you. You find that bliss. So that's the view of time. Yeah. Anything else? <laughs> all right. God bless us all. Thank you. Swami Chit Brahmanam. That's it. Swami C. There's plenty.